0: Do you want to go into stasis for the rest of the trip and forfeit 18 months' wages? Do you want to listen to Dwarfcast by Ganymede and Titan? Choose. Awoga, this is a Dwarfcast. Hello and welcome to the Ganymede and Titan Dwarfcast Book Club for Novel 2, Better Than Life, Part 3, Garbage World. Our numbering system is so easy and
1: uh <laughs> simple to follow. It's also book it's book club six. You forgot that. Book club six. <laughs> book club six for book two, part three. <laughs> dwarf cast one hundred and twenty something. <laughs> Primorph two, emo Hawk one. <laughs> and knuckles. <laughs>
0: so yes, uh, this is the series where we reread, dissect and discuss the four red dwarf novels part by part. And like I've already said, (laughs) this is part three of Better Than Life Garbage World. Uh, Joining me, Ian Symes, as you've already heard, are Denny Stevenson. Hello. And Jonathan Capps. Hi and we're also joined in spirit by many of our loyal listeners slash readers who've been leaving their comments on the book over at www.ganymede.tv. as usual we'd recommend re-familiarizing yourself with the book before you listen uh or familiarize yourself with it in the first place if it's the first time you've read it there will be plenty of spoilers uh for this part of the book but uh we'll try- do our best not to skip ahead uh, and if you've forgotten what happened last time here's a little recap Lister and Kat are emaciated from their time in the game. While tending to them, Rimmer and Crichton notice that the engines are off. They turn Holly on, who explains what happened and is turned off with 45 seconds of runtime remaining. Crichton then notices that the ship is on collision course with a planet. With three weeks to turn the engines on and escape before impact, Rimmer and the scutters get to work. When Rimmer accidentally kills half of them, they have no option but to abandon ship. As Crichton gets the still recovering Lister and Cat ready, Rimmer consults Holly, who quickly calculates the most audacious piece of astro-navigation ever attempted. It boils down to playing pool with planets, and Lister thinks he can do a better job. He and Rimmer set off in Starbug and are successful, but Stargbug gets hit by the planet's slipstream and crash lands on an ice planet, triggering a condensed version of Marooned. There's interference with Rimmer's hologrammatic signal, and he gets beamed back to Red Dwarf. Lister eats some dog food and falls asleep. He's awoken to the sound of the planet melting around him, but goes back to sleep while it blows over. On Red Dwarf, something is wrong with time. It's passing more quickly on one side of the ship than the other. The crew realise they're being sucked off into a black hole. I added a word to that.
1: <laughs> you did. <laughs> See if you can
0: spot it at home, listeners. And so, the uh, this part of the book kicks off with a little subchapter that sort of stands alone, uh, scene setting one. And it's just really, really good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like previous on the last one we talked about how uh, in this book um, we were wondering whether the um, the splits between the parts were kind of arbitrary, um, but here this part is incredibly well structured at this stage, at least. <laughs> yeah. it, start, it starts off with a proper, you know, scene setter. It feels like the pre-titles of a movie, basically. This bit like giving you the backstory of what happened with Garbage World.
2: I really enjoy this kind of complete step change.
0: And I guess it's similar in that it it does it through the eyes of a brand new character as well with John New we discover what he's been up to and that's how we discover the world and what's happened uh, with his with his Buttocks wobbling hairily, according to the prose. And then he dies. <laughs>
2: and then he dies. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. Is like the Grantiller are very good at just introducing someone for like four seconds before something inexplicably horrible happens to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Denison Josie. Denison yeah. Josie McIntyre with his nose. You've just like within yeah. seconds, there's something horrendous going on.
1: Yeah, it's 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 really cool. I mean, like. The stuff that Red Dwarf fans really lap up in these books is the world-building bits, and this is basically just like a, a just a direct injection of world-building, and it's cool because it's it's a bit daft, <clears throat> but it is rooted in a certain amount of believability. Like it adds to the universe rather than thinking, oh, this is a, you know this is a bit silly if you know what I mean. Because it is mm-hmm. a silly concept, but it, it's done in quite a believable way.
0: And it's perhaps slightly ahead of its time in a way um, there's a social satire at work there about how human beings have completely fucked over the planet and have drained it of all its resources and literally turned it into garbage world it just it just takes the metaphor a bit further
2: <laughs> Yeah, because when I was reading it my, my brain kind of went, well why didn't they just fire it into the sun or something you know, a la sort of um, well, sort of a similar thing to what Futurama tried to do or tried to like get the idea across <laughs> yeah. with but then I realize it's like they do mention that as well. It's like it's too costly mm. to do it, so it's like it's yeah. easy to just dump it all on one planet and have one planet be designated as the ship planet.
1: That's it. It's rooted in just enough um, kind of real world concerns, I guess, to kind of mm. think, oh yeah, you can see how this would happen. Yeah, in this situation. Um, and I like yeah, in, when
0: in the decision making progress, Earth just arrogantly just like, well, of course it's not going to be us.
1: Of course, then, of course, we're not going to vote to leave the EU. I mean, (laughs) like, this is not going to happen. Like, he's never going to be voted president, guys. It's fine. What have you got against Joe Biden? (laughs) Well, I I mean, I actually got in my notes here is that, I mean, these days you wouldn't have the Eurovision, the, I should say, interminable Eurovision um, (laughs) bit. If you listen to the if you listen to the audio of that, you are done with that about five percent of the way through it. <laughs> well, it takes up just because of the the accuracy of the Eurovision parody. Yes. It takes up a full page, like pretty much in the book. It's, it's just yeah. It's like okay, we get the point. But if it was being written these days, then um, Earth Earth being nom- um, voted for it would have been a fifty two forty yeah. but... eight <laughs> percent. But oh, no yeah, I do I like
0: the Eurovision parody. And when you're reading the book it's better because you can you don't have to literally read every single word,
1: you can kind of get the gist. Yeah and Chris, Chris Barry doing all the pauses and the um satellite delays like perfect to a T is great. <laughs> but yeah. Uh I do
0: wonder what people from outside of Europe would make of this bit. <laughs> what what is this? Why well people in Australia saying... will know what it is. Oh fuck that! <laughs> Man, that's, that's a controversial part of the Eurovision. <laughs> it's the <laughs> only thing. controversial part of Eurovision. <laughs> yeah, why have they taken an entire page? Why have they paused to give the full results, country by country, in, and then repeated them in two different languages? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Bizarre. Um, I like as well the detail of South Mars. <laughs> yeah. yeah, which is which reminds me a bit of a little place I used to live called Hanwell which uh, pretends to be West Ealing (laughs) (laughs) all these parts of Hanwell pretend to be West Ealing (laughs) sounds nicer it's where the studios are Uh, Uh, from
0: my uh, childhood home, um, North Solihull is a thing (laughs) uh, it it is not Solihull (laughs) it's Chelmsley Wood, but they've rebranded it North Solihull
1: (laughs) Uh, and because we can't get through a, um, a dwarf cast without a West Wing mention, there's the the, the whole plot line of um, it's slightly different, but South Dakota or North Dakota complaining that South Dakota, or they want to change their name because the South gets all the best tourism just because they've got a nicer name. South is just a, a nicer, a more appealing tourist destination than North something. North sounds colder. And the
0: uh, as the West Wing references, the actual reason is something that's referenced later on in this book. Oh yeah, so we'll get to it. Good point. But yeah, um, a few like small details that I noticed in this. There is, it says <laughs> roughly three hundred years after the invention of the light bulb um, was when this decision uh, was when um, mankind conquered uh, interstellar travel, which makes it twenty one seventy nine. If anyone's interested. Oh. So, we've got about 150 years. So not in to the, the too
1: distant future then. So, so No, yeah. L- Lister Lister definitely wasn't. Oh no, Lister was born in 2155, so Yeah. He must have uh, he must have gone to Mimas just at the start of the Yeah. It was like yeah, just on the cusp of when he went into stasis was when
0: mankind mastered interstellar travel. Hmm. And then I guess that's what stasis was designed
1: for originally, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah. So like proper interstellar travel that doesn't yeah. involve having to doesn't need that. Yeah. So the order of this is, we've been told about garbage world seemingly, or Earth being garbage world seemingly out of the blue at this point. Like we ha- like maybe you haven't put the put two and two together to figure out why we're being told about what happened to garbage mm. world. Is that right?
2: Yeah, it's interesting because you're kind of told about what happens to Earth at this point, and they're told about the fact that you know this whole thing's covered in, in 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 crap and and everything. But you not you don't really discover that everything that the planet that they're on.
1: Yeah, yeah. Earth Earth until later on Earth. when the
2: Earth melts, and then there's like because the weather system's strange, and then all of a sudden it's like yeah. there's like a sea of bottles. At that point, you should really be putting two and two together.
0: Well, there's a, there's a big old clue at the end of this chapter is that it says that when it uh when Earth slash garbage world ripped itself free from its orbit and started floating through space, it then got covered in a perennial ice age.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. So that's right.
1: You know that they've collided with, with an ice planet. So it's, it's a nice reveal it, because yeah. it isn't just saying, "and that planet was discovered by Lister and Rimmer." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it just, it just kind of <laughs> everything unfolds, and it never really, you know, it, it never explicitly yeah. says it. It's just suddenly become is suddenly like you're aware of, you know, this is Earth. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. It's not a difficult.
0: Um, piece of the jigsaw to put together, but it's satisfying that they Still let satisfying. you put it yeah. together
1: rather than just spelling it out for you. Isn't it a bit interesting that the Earth and Red Dwarf basically had the same fate because of a nuclear incident had to escape the solar system as quickly as possible? True.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, the nuclear problem on Red Dwarf was a, like a radiation issue, but the fact that it was a basically nuclear-sized event that forced Earth to fuck off. Yeah. Okay. So you mean, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you, yeah. But both, both, both things, yeah, needed to leave the solar system, or like unwillingly, <laughs> unwillingly left the solar system. In the Earth's case. So are we saying that the, when it says
2: that the, the craft um, that John was on. And flew into the planet, and ex- did, did that explode? And that caused the chain reaction that set the Earth off? Is that what we're saying? Mm. So, doesn't that explicitly say that the actual the ship that fell in
1: is it well exploded? Well, I assume so because he's in the methane, he's in the sewage bit. Mm. I thought that it was uh, what happened to him was a side effect, like it was
0: all going to happen anyway. He just happened to be there when oh, the, right, the yeah, nuclear okay. event happened. Like, not that he caused it, uh, but that. By coincidence, he was he was there, just finishing off his massive piece of graffiti, and I love, I absolutely love the prose there. You was here, and it was right. E was <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, using <laughs> using the graffiti spelling and punctuation. I yeah.
2: remember, I, I remember doing it. Uh, I think I made a. a it might actually be actually beyond G and T. Actually, in the download section, one of the wallpapers might be a, a, a Google Earth version of Garbage World. Oh yeah.
1: <laughs> With you as I remember it?
2: having to look up all the research of like which bits were oil, which bits were like which bits were glass bottles and stuff and I <laughs> had a ton of fun working out where things were.
1: Oh uh, yeah, that's good. So okay. So speaking of your wallpaper that you just mentioned, Danny, that I definitely heard. Um <laughs> Why? Why did they bother segmenting the rubbish? I think it's the
2: joke of to separate out your you crap, like you're recycling, okay. and you think right. <laughs> I've always assumed it was that. It was like a, we're not going to just chuck everything everywhere; that would be too ridiculous. Let's at least yeah. sort it.
1: So it's satire of the of the uh, doing a little bit to, to fool yourself into thinking you're actually recycling when really you're probably not at the end of the day. It's yeah, all it's all just going to go to the same. Probably place. going into the same pile. Yeah. <laughs> Most of the
2: time. I don't know. I just think it's sort yeah. of like a you know, a council intervened and went, No, no, you you're definitely not gonna do that. Yeah. Like you you need to at least separate your rubbish if you're gonna put it, if you're gonna use earth, you've <laughs> gotta fucking separate your brown bottles from your green bottles.
1: Well that's the thing, is that if you've been that granular, like North America is huge and yet North America is like the bottles bit. <laughs> like at some point, you've got to be like, "Well, this bit is general waste, and this is like we, you know, we're not we're not going to like <laughs> misc. We're we're not going to like micromanage every last tiny bit of possible rubbish because that would be ridiculous." But it's not only that, like, not only is North America the
0: glass continent, but also it's separate, uh, clear, brown, and green yeah. glass as well. <laughs> and you're not going to have as many as many brown bottles, not even close. No, you're not. Yeah. Well, it depends, but like in Robin Doug's world <laughs> those little tiny brown bottles of beer that you get in with um, takeaway curry sometimes yeah, it's well, yeah. <laughs> just all that, that I think actually genuinely brown bottles were more common in the late 80s early 90s I think they were because I think now. they were
2: cheaper to produce than clear bottles and I think yeah. clear bottles yeah. just became easy to make so therefore they just yeah so they overtook white dog shit <laughs> you don't get white dog shit anymore. yeah white dog shit was definitely not easy to produce <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> got a few comments about this section. Oh, brilliant! Uh, in and I dies uh, says it's endearing to have the Eurovision gag. It's fairly obvious, but these little references to when Red Dwarf was written, such as uh, Felicity Kendall and Norway, <laughs> had a sense of nostalgia now, and they're fairly infrequent, so don't date things too much.
2: But Eurovision's yeah. still going. It's still going on. Is
0: <laughs> yeah, Eurovision is really enduring. It's been going since the fifties, I think. Yeah, doesn't show any signs of
1: stopping. I guess they included it. Because it was massive and it looked like it was always gonna be around because they wouldn't <laughs> deliberately put something in that was kinda of gonna date it. Yeah, no, you I think Eurovision being the butt of a joke feels old fashioned, whereas Eurovision doesn't feel old fashioned, if you see what I mean. Like the jokes about Eurovision seem to have gone or moved or changed to be something else now.
0: Yeah, it's now about how Britain never gets anything because of all the <laughs> bloody politicals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I've just remembered that there's a, a potential Eurovision reference in the TV series in Better Than Life. The ship that Gordon is on being the um, SS Scott Fitzgerald. Um, that the uh, Britain's Eurovision entry that year in 1988 was Scott Fitzgerald.
1: <laughs> I didn't know that.
0: It's a disputed reference. It might <laughs> not be. Okay. Dave said. Um, Having Pluto uh, referred to as a bona fide planet now dates the book. Hmm. It will always be a planet to me. Hashtag justice for Pluto.
1: <laughs> I, still don't, I still haven't kept up with this because the last I thought, the last I heard, is that it was a planet again. But it's kind of yo yoed. So Pluto is, I think, is now
2: classed as a dwarf planet.
1: Dwarf planet. So
2: it is technically a planet, a planet, but there are other.
1: But if. It's South Mars. <laughs> yeah,
2: it's, it's sort of sub Neptune. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like. Yeah. Um, but if. It was like if Pluto is is so small that it can be a planet, then there are loads of other things in the solar system that could be classified as the same thing as what Pluto is. So it's easier to say Pluto yeah. isn't a planet and say it's a protoplanet, dwarf planet, than it is to say that it is a planet right, in the same it? way as the other ones are.
1: I mean, it's massively smaller than a lot of moons, isn't it?
2: I mean, it's basically a rock. <laughs> it's shit. It
1: has its erratic orbit, as yeah, it. Exactly. it it's, yeah, exactly. There's loads of things that
2: kind of like that say it's not a planet or shouldn't be classed as a planet the same as the others.
1: Well, you know, there's only nine of us. We, we should stick together, really. Yeah. <laughs> eight of us.
2: <laughs> the eight of us are here as normal. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Muppet Jedi
0: says, during this uh, Garbage World backstory, they mentioned how Neptune was terraformed, which is a possible callback to Peterson's house on Triton. Uh, I'd have never picked up on that if it wasn't for the block and I thought it was neat. You're welcome.
2: Yeah, it's good, that. So was it the fact that at the point when he had bought it, Neptune hadn't been
1: terraformed? I still think he like didn't buy shit, and he was just like sold a piece of paper.
0: That was the theory we came to. Oh, in the it was first a scam, club, I think, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, but yeah, it, 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 I think it was what was supposed to be was that it was about to be terraformed, yeah. and if so, then that was actually a really smart investment on Peterson's part. Uh, but he died before it happened. But by the time of the garbage world stuff happening, they had terraformed Neptune.
1: Mm. I mean, quite aside from the fact that you wouldn't build anything until it was terraformed. Because it'd be much more expensive to build something on an unterraformed planet, right? Such an idiot.
0: (laughs) Infinity was weeks ago. (laughs) Right now, we're far more concerned about the terrible thing that happens to Lister in part two of (laughs) chapter two of this part, which is yeah, it's just relentless for Lister.
2: Mm. (laughs) This is like a bad dream when you just like you just just, uh, like oh fuck this thing oh god this thing oh god this thing oh god it's awful (laughs) it's awful to read it's just
0: the prose is is just so well written it feels like there's genuine peril yeah even though i know what how it all ends (laughs) because i've read this book before still reading it you got a sense of oh god
1: the visualization of it like they, they just communicate yeah perfectly it's so good when
2: I first read this when I when I when I first because I've i've only read the I've only heard the audiobook just like the most recent just because you know um in prepared for this but when I used to read the the book this bit used to not make much sense to me in terms of like the the geography and everything working the way it was but this time reading it like it's so clear what is happening with the where the bunk is and and, and where everything is relationship with the acid stuff like the the peril of it is just so tangible. Like you can see the, the the fear in Lister, like like understanding
1: what is going on right now. Yeah, yeah. it's just you feel that you really you do. You can imagine being in that situation, which is weird.
0: And he he, he, d- he gets some serious injuries in it as well. He get he has a smoking peephole in his hand, and he loses an earlobe. Yeah, <laughs> so like it does have an effect on him massively. And yeah, yeah that, really descriptions of those like bubbling pockets of metal that the acid's working its way through, and they're getting closer and closer to him. God. Like, and Lister is claustrophobic in the TV series as well. So if you add that in, he's, he's having a terrible time. It's
2: that it's that image of when he says, "Oh, you know, like well, the acid rain's been going on." God, it's how is it not getting through the bunk above him? And he looks up, and it's all bulging towards him. It's just like yeah. holy <laughs> shit.
1: <laughs> There's a nice, um, a nice comment from International Debris actually, which uh, is a point I was going to make. But um, Lister didn't really expect to find an access hatch leading straight down to Earth maintenance decks smack under the bunk, but it still surprised him when he didn't. Is another masterful comic <laughs> sentence, which I just fucking butchered <laughs> reading back. But um, yeah, it reminds me of Rimmer being angry that there isn't a, a blast off button.
0: Yeah, it's the bit where he's talking about. He's, furious, he's absolutely furious that that isn't there. Yeah. Then he goes and makes himself a, a protective suit made out of solid steel that is too heavy to move. <laughs> 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 Which is good. But it's also like that's written, so he does that and then realizes that he can't move, and so you think it's just all been a colossal waste of time and that, and that that's the joke. But then he comes up with an ingenious method of moving it by attaching it to a forklift and operating it through a pulley system. Mm. Uh, which is obviously uh, ingenious from Lister and brilliant writing by Grant Naylor, but um, when I read it back this time, all I could think about was Mr. Bean sat on a yeah. sofa <laughs> on the top of his Mini. <laughs> that's essentially what happened. Yeah,
1: that's a good point. And actually, maybe this is the hardest bit to visualize in your head unless you're visualizing, <laughs> Just visualizing him attached to a Mini. It's yeah. fine. <laughs> and yeah, they reveal that, like, you know, once the forklift truck gets fucked, and that the armour is being eaten through to the point where it's light enough for him to move and that gives him just enough time to get to his shelter is is yeah, yeah it's pretty exciting. It's a nice nice way of kinda of getting him out of the situation because really it's quite masterful, like how fucked his situation is and then being able to actually get him out of there in a particularly believable way, kind of, is quite impressive.
0: Yeah. We have to buy into the fact that the acid rainstorm is entirely localised into a very small area. (laughs) Yeah, so if you accept the fact that that's possible. There was that whole thing in the comments that I think got resolved in the end of someone saying like, acid rain does not work like this. This is absolute nonsense. But it does point out in the in the thing of like this wasn't like normal acid rain this was really really weird acid rain it
1: was localized and then there was there was the you know and the the conclusion that it's the earth attacking lister i think pretty yeah. much kind of underlines the fact that if you're going to buy into that concept then the things that the earth can do should be pretty much unlimited right because if if you're going to make the earth sentient and I, i've got a note here that just says robin dugger hippies <laughs> <laughs> it's almost certainly true.
2: The earth is attacking Lister in an almost Truman Show like way as well, where, like, yes, it's literally <laughs> yeah. only over him.
1: Yeah, ironic attacks as well, like the oil
0: rain. Yeah. It gets to the point where I don't think that we are supposed to think that it's literally the earth is sentient and is attacking him, but it basically, everything that happens to him in these few chapters, like, it's just so much relentless torment yeah. for him where every time he thinks he's safe there's something else comes along like oh okay I'm safe from the acid rain oh shit it's raining oil and then right I can get out of the way of this oh no there's an earthquake oh no the oil's caught fire oh god
1: well the thing is, is if it wasn't the earth directly attacking him and he didn't actually make a pact with the earth to stop it <clears throat> then he sets up home just down the hill from the original site like surely he would have been like he would have had all of those things Happening to him on a daily basis, because if that if it wasn't the Earth attacking him, then it would be the norm, right? It would it would always happen like that. I don't think it was norm. <laughs> I always, tell me blame him for everything else.
0: Uh I don't know. It's kind of it's. I think it's open to. I think it's deliberately ambivalent, uh, ambiguous, rather as to whether that's literally <laughs> the case or whether it just feels like it is to Lister. I think, that's, yeah. yeah. And, and don't forget as well. It's the the planet is just um ending like very rapidly ending an ice age the weather's bound to be a bit okay and then it settles in for yeah. a little bit yeah either way it's totally justified Lister having that breakdown and screaming for the earth to finish him off it feels real yeah because of how well it's written mm. obviously uh, but the way Lister feels seems perfectly reasonable <laughs> yeah. like he's totally justified in having that breakdown and then the the real rain coming down and like there literally being an olive branch <laughs> yeah it's a beautiful thing.
2: It's almost like a biblical trial, like a test, mm-hmm. a test of his will and a test of his, yeah. of, his um, of his spirit, basically. And just like, like you know, and he almost fails, and then the earth just rewards him.
1: In in many ways, um, only having olives to eat is kind of the final piece of this horrible trial <laughs> that he has to uh, get through.
0: Yeah, it it does say when he he, re- he reached out and at the fruit and started to weep, I'd weep if it turned out to be fucking, <laughs> fucking <honest>. olives. Yeah. <laughs> Horrible. <laughs> but yeah, what you were saying just now about this being Lister's test, when the giant cockroach turns up, the first time we see a giant cockroach, Lister's instinct is to defend himself yeah. slash attack the cockroach. But then he he realises that, no, I'm, the human race isn't going to kill anymore. I'm going to be friends with this cockroach. This cockroach means me no harm. I'm going to be all right. And that is kind of like in this road to Damascus style journey that uh, Lister is on. That's when he starts seeing that this could work. This could be an inhabitable place. Let's make the most of it. Let's see what mm. happens. Mm. So yeah. either he's literally made a pact with the earth or his mental state is now in a way where he can start to build and start to look to the future and start to figure out how he's going to live his yeah.
1: life. He sees the cockroach eating the, the the garbage as well, and also his glass bottles everywhere. So he's somewhere in America, right? Yeah, East Coast, some, I think. So yeah, somewhere in America. Well, which explains we know the exactly where he is. We know exactly. Oh yeah, where of course. Are. Yeah. Fuck yeah! Because yeah, we skipped America, past man. it, we forgot it.
0: But yeah, <laughs> the. Uh... It's basically Planet of the Apes where he's on this planet and he doesn't know what it is or where he is and then he sees Mount Rushmore Uh, so he's in South Dakota (laughs) which is the reason why South Dakota has better tourism than North Dakota is because they have Mount Rushmore Yes,
1: he's in the mid-north America (laughs) Wherever
0: wherever South Dakota is that's where he is (laughs) It's really cold so it's up
2: Who's the fifth head on Mount Rushmore? Donald Trump. No. Uh,
0: Elaine, <laughs> Elaine Salinger, it says. All right. I googled Elaine Salinger to see if that was a joke, that it was like a, a small-time <laughs> contemporary American politician that they'd decided would be a future president, and that doesn't appear to be a real person. <laughs>
1: oh, weird.
0: However, there is a short story called Elaine, written by J.D. Salinger, of Catcher in the Rye fame. Right. Um... But it's it, it's not about a politician or anything. It's no. about a young woman um, with autism who gets sexually assaulted. So Probably not a reference. Not, I don't know. It's it's weird that... Yeah, I don't know. It's just, Well, they didn't have Google when they wrote this. But if you Google the name <laughs> Elaine Salinger, that's what comes up. But they wouldn't have known that. No, so. that's true.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, weird. Weird. You'd think that, you know, it's an open goal, that, right? like yeah. the fifth one that you wouldn't expect to be president. But then maybe living in a world where um, it wasn't so long since Ronald Reagan became president, it, it, like literally nothing seemed ridiculous to them. Because Ronald yeah. Reagan becoming president was like Donald Trump becoming president for yeah, us. Yeah, it was the most ridiculous thing <laughs> you yeah. could imagine.
0: As, hence all the jokes in Back to the Future.
1: And uh, not in the news. It
0: was uh, it was what three years later they were making jokes about Dan Quayle, so (laughs) maybe that
1: would have been hit. The fifth one was Dan Quayle if he was around in 1990. I don't know. There must have had like there must have been some really shit American presidents if they were okay adding one, but they only ever added one. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) in all that time.
0: Mount Rushmore is not a massively uh, environmentally (laughs) environmentally sound idea, really. That's true using dynamite to carve actual mountains into faces of people probably, it's probably frowned upon these days
2: sacred mountains at that you just
0: couldn't do that these days could you, it's a real shame it's political correctness gone mad <laughs> <laughs> you can't just blow up mountains like after all this happens Lister basically goes home with the cockroaches and becomes the king of the cockroaches yeah. <laughs> Uh, he's forced to eat a sofa
2: that's why he had to make a new one is he, is he king of the cockroaches or king of the cockroaches
1: <laughs> you'd be forgiven if it was all revealed to be like a giant fever dream on, on Lister's part
0: but yeah this, all this stuff with the cockroaches and garbage world was at some point going to be was planned to be made into an episode which we assume was... In fact, I think we know was series four. Uh, it was going to be. Right, yeah. Uh, what I'm not sure about was whether it was going to be part of White Hole. Yeah. Or whether originally like they wanted... Confidence and White...
1: paranoia into me squared sort of a thing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> whether yeah whether White Hole was going to be more like it is in the book and like that the playing ball with planets was going to then lead into this happening or whether there was a whole separate episode. But yeah, it's it's impossible to imagine this being made in nineteen ninety one. like it's it's difficult enough now but like yeah back then it's the only apparently the only thing that ed by has ever said no to was receiving a script saying lister is a, straight, a giant cockroach <laughs> <laughs> he runs takes off and we see that lister is on
1: garbage world and in planet entirely made of rubbish and you you could you could certainly do that now it, it you can basically now do whatever you want, it's just about how much fidelity you're willing to trade off with it, uh, yeah. uh, based on the money you've got to do it. Like, you know, you could technically put something together, so um, it'd be really cool to do now. Like, it would, I, I think we mentioned this in the last part that, um, if they ever wanted to finish off the show for good, then you could take loads of stuff from this, um, yeah, for that sort of story.
0: Yeah, it would be. Yeah, they finally find Earth, yeah, and it's this, but they decide to make the best of it and and do what they can. Yeah, that it's a really satisfying. It's
2: it's interesting actually because I've just you've just you've just brought myself to mind the the, at the end of Nanarchy when they go to a planet and realize the planet is red dwarf. Mm. Yeah, like that does kind of blindside you a little bit. But I like the idea. Like even that, I mean, the entire plot of the whole thing with the cockroaches and stuff could totally be a series in itself. Like it could start off with Lister. Ended up on this planet, and then it's like the whole the whole series is about this planet in particular. Mm-hmm. And, the, and like I said, the polymorph thing could totally be a part of it, um, and you know that part of the plot and everything like that. So it, it would it would work quite well. I'd quite like to see that. You could have Red Dwarf garbage world as a standalone thing or a series of itself.
0: A spin Yeah, mm.
2: yeah,
0: that, yeah. That's what Rob Grant can do while uh, <laughs> while Doug continues to make like current proper Red Dwarf radio show. <laughs> Rob cool. can go back and fill in all the gaps. Um, Clem points out that the thing of riding around on a cockroach is similar to Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. So it
1: is it, it is possible to film. <laughs> yeah, if you have millions and millions of, uh, in a Hollywood yeah. budget. Yeah. And Rick Moranis. And, you know, you've got to have Rick That's one of the stipulations. It's only possible if
0: Rick Moranis is involved. <laughs> meanwhile, back on Red Dwarf, because yeah, there, it's a, it jumps around a little bit here mm. um, narratively. Not that much, actually, after this. But yeah, meanwhile they're figuring out what's going on with the time dilation and the toaster pops up and explains everything. Up. <laughs> pops up. Pops <laughs> up. The toaster does a massive speech explaining exactly what a black hole is and how it all works. And I was just wondering what... because. Like they didn't have Wikipedia, so what did they copy and paste this from?
2: That'll be from the previous two time again.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that was when it is. Yeah. It just Stephen or maybe Robby? a really yeah. early version of uh, the Encarta Encyclopedia. I don't think had CD-ROMs then, so probably yeah, no. probably didn't exist.
0: Well <laughs> then, yeah, um, the toaster only agrees to a, impart this information after he force feeds them all. <laughs> several rounds of
1: 38 (laughs) rounds of toasters it's used like the expanded toaster use is really good (laughs) like it's some of the funniest stuff in this but I do find it funny that they just keep creating new characters that that clash purposes with each other like they literally had to kill Holly to have the toaster (laughs) <laughs> yeah i think
0: a lot in this book holly uh the toaster fulfills the role that holly would yeah. normally have and because Crichton's useless and he's just not fulfilling that role at all in this book yeah apparently. yeah which does make you think well, what was the point of just turning holly off in the first, because they had to have this moment in the previous part where in fact it might have even been the first part where that during the conversation between holly and the toaster they pause from what from what ends up being in um, white hole, and he says, "Do you want me to explain black holes to you?" And he <laughs> says, oh, "All right then." It's only now that it's clear that why that happens. But yeah. when you think about it, that's a little bit contrived <laughs> that Holly just happened to impart all this information
1: about black holes before he switched himself off. You can kind of see, actually, con- considering how little that Holly is used in the the rest of the book, you can see why they didn't bother changing his gender. Because you yeah. don't do that and then just forget about the character, you know, or just have him pop up um, for brief um, solutions every now and then. So that's mm. presumably why they kept him as a male. Also, so they could just like basically shut Norman in a box. As soon as you started
0: <laughs> talking about that, I thought, yeah, it's, it's because they don't want Norman around, <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe, yeah. even like a prose version of Norman. <laughs> it's just.
1: Completely close Holly down completely. Yeah. And, you know, open up a whole world of comedy that the toaster brings. Like, completely mm-hmm. unique dynamic. In the TV series, in both
0: incarnations, he's annoying, and that's his primary function, <laughs> is annoying. But he's he's quite malevolent in this book. Yeah, he's he's, he's quite cunt. sinister. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, he's literally blackmailing them for their lives to eat toast, because without the information that he's got, they are definitely all going to die. <laughs> and the only. Like, he's not. It, like, he would die too. Yeah. If he gets pulled into the black hole, his existence would be over. And yet still, he could just impart this information now to save himself. But no, he must make the meat toast first.
2: Yeah, it's almost like he wants to at least fulfil his raison d'etre yes. before. Yeah. The thing is, what I've always used to get really confused with the toaster is they need to get the bread from somewhere. Like, it always sounds like as if he's producing the bread from scratch. That's what <laughs> yeah.
1: You have to keep yeah, feeding
2: totally. him bread. Yeah, it's like you have to kind of put stuff in him and then go, right, okay, well, now now we're toasting that. Well, no,
0: yeah, the yeah. fact that it's voice-activated and everything and has this AI and continues to offer you toast, it makes you think, with, when you don't think about it too much, like he works like the vending machines do on Red Dwarf, yes. yeah. where you just go up to them and say, I'll have chicken soup and chicken soup appears. But if he's, like, think how it actually works... He pipes up saying, do you want any toast? And you for once go, oh, go on then, yes, please. And he goes, right, well, um, you're in. just going to have to go to the bread <laughs> bin, bring the bread over, put it in. Then I'll, I'll toast it for you, sure. But uh, you are going to have to do most of the work here, mate.
1: <laughs> Only cost $20.
2: <laughs> that is exactly why. It's like, yo, would you like to have a cheese and ham brevel? It's like, well, yeah, And goes, well. Go get the cheese. Go get the ham. Also, you're gonna have to 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 slice. I can't make this. I can make it warmer for you, but I can't actually make the fucking thing.
0: Yeah, and also you're gonna have to go and get the brevel. (laughs) You have to get the brevel.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I I will play no part in this. I'm merely suggesting putting it out there. Do
2: you want a cup of tea? Yeah. Well, go fucking make one then, you lazy. Do you?
1: Do you want to lift back to the bus stop? (laughs) Oh yes, please. Well, why? It's only a fifteen-minute walk.
0: But yeah, apparently what he's learned and what he passes on is that in order to escape a black hole, you just go faster towards it. Mm.
1: Yeah, and slingshot your way out. Yeah,
0: and I don't know if there are any um, theoretical metaphysical scientists Uh, uh, on G&T, but it's like, whatever. I (laughs) mean, mean,
2: spaghettification is is an actual theory. Like it, will, it, a, it will, yeah spaghettification is the actual physical like the actual technical term for what would happen to you if you were to enter past the event horizon of a black hole you would be like that's what theoretically would happen to your atoms would be literally strung apart um, whether you would get re- yeah. whether you would go through the middle and come out the other side that's where physics breaks down because we just don't understand what happens in the middle that's the All thing right, you. you have to go faster than light as well which obviously is the the fudgy bit the bit that doesn't make sense because you can't go faster than light because it is a limit
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's the fastest speed there is. (laughs) Yeah, it's the, the spaghettification thing is really weird. I can't get my head around it. And so in my head, I'm picturing it in quite a cartoonish way, where they are yeah, just two like eyeballs. And file of spaghetti. Yeah, two eye exactly that two eyeballs as meatballs on yeah. top of a pile of spaghetti. exactly. It's
2: like the flying spaghetti monster. That's what I see it as is like yes. the, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and on their
0: noodly goodness, it's kind of like the Simpsons style big round
2: blinking eyes. <laughs> they look like a Play-Doh fun factory where you just like you you push the uh, uh, you, yeah. you push the Play-Doh <laughs> yeah. through the thing and
1: it comes out all like that. So Dave says an interesting thing, because this is something I've been struggling with since it's been a topic of conversation for like all the books really. But he says this might be the point in which Book Crichton goes from David Ross to Robert Llewellyn. And I've been thinking about this and I don't think I think he's he's yo yoing for me. I can't I can't nail him down at all. Like he's hmm. sometimes he's David Ross, sometimes he's Robert. It's uh, it's very odd.
0: There is a bit in here where Crichton is counting down to them reaching light speed or reaching the event horizon, <laughs> yes. whichever it is, I can't remember. And he keeps getting distracted and forgetting to do bits of the... Like, yeah. he misses the 20 seconds and then they have a conversation about that and that causes him to miss the next one.
1: <laughs> that's Robert.
0: But that feels like Dave-era Robert Crichton.
1: Yes. Right, yeah.
0: It yeah, either feels right. like early Holly, like series 1 and 2 Holly, would do that. or Maybe even all Holly, actually. It feels like any version of Holly would do that. Yeah. And then, like, much later Crichton would do that, but not any of the... Crichton's that exist in this time. Yeah, I agree. And I think this this is a bit where most of the time, if Holly hadn't been turned off, that would definitely be Holly who was missing out bits of Countdown. Yeah, that's definitely more of a Holly thing than a Crichton thing. And so, yeah, I still find Crichton's character really difficult to place in this.
1: Yeah, it was still the transition period, wasn't it?
0: It's kind of a unique version. He's yeah. neither David Ross or Robert Llewellyn. Like in Infinity, he was definitely David Ross the whole way through. But here is kind of a middle ground, yeah. and I think only. In the last day, really, is does Robert's version of Crichton get nailed in series three? And series four is a huge, huge change for Robert's portrayal of the character, and like how strong his performances in Camille, and you, then you think of White Hole and and all the rest of it. I think if they were writing it after they'd filmed series four, it would definitely be a more solidly Robert Crichton. Hundred percent Robert. But yeah, the, when you think of series three Crichton, when you look back, it's not he's not quite the Crichton we now know and love. Uh, so no wonder the book version wasn't quite there either.
2: And this is where we get introduced to the Omnisone, isn't it?
0: That's yeah. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, we there are six
1: other universes, uh, as well as yeah. ours. So down from infinity, <laughs> yeah, down down many from infinity. It's the number of parallel universes to seven. <laughs> <laughs> perfect.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a much better way of saying that goes against later established multiverse. <laughs> yeah,
1: um well, infinite universes came in series 4. Has anyone said there's an infinite number of realities or universes before series 4 before the dimension jump?
0: dimension jump was the first time but we didn't we didn't really see evidence of that until Stoke Me a Clipper.
1: Right, yeah. With the
0: sheer number of um of aces, there were.
1: Do they say that there's infinite universes in parallel universe? I, mean, I guess they do, don't they? I think, or they suggest it anyway. So
2: I think you just said we've into the fourth dimension, which is coexisting reality. Yeah.
1: It's, it, I find the the idea of there being like well, I, I guess it's seven, isn't it? So like seven, yeah. including our current one. The idea of like seven, seven universes, like more interesting than infinite like uh, because infinite is every decision makes a split off and that is almost the accepted kind of theory at the moment but yeah. seven feels so specific it feels more fantasy It's like someone has designed that if it's if there's seven,
0: yeah. that sounds like intelligent design. Yeah, yeah, some description that like here's here's the backwards one and here's the female one. Well, they're, all one. they're all backwards. All backwards <laughs> yeah. apart from us. We're the we're the ones that are backwards. <laughs> all the other ones are backwards, and we're not.
1: We're the backwards universe, and yeah.
0: So we are the backwards universe.
1: <laughs> it's like Norse mythology. I think there might even be seven realms in Norse mythology where Midgard is ours and then you've got Helheim and uh, I was going to say Sovengard, but I think that might be an Elder Scrolls thing
0: <laughs> It's so easy to get those <laughs> It really up. is
1: um, <laughs> and um, uh, Valhalla you know, uh, Heaven and stuff like that and they're, they're all presented as more like um, kind of planes of reality um, and I think there's about seven of them
0: So meanwhile they get out of the black hole, everything's fine <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Everything's fine now. Black the black hole did problem. it everyone. <laughs> uh and then they go and search for Lister. So they split off into pairs, um Rimmer and Cat and Crichton and the toaster. <laughs> and it's just it's so weird. The toaster joins the search party. Uh, like, he's just a part of the regular crew now. He's like a new main character.
1: And they must have made a decision, a conscious decision, that, like, they're better off taking the toaster than just leaving him on the ship. Because they could just leave him on the ship. Like, yeah, he couldn't follow him the them. But they've decided, <laughs> yeah. actually, we probably need this toaster. <laughs> yeah, apparently he's... Hyper intelligent because yeah. he's got all of Holly's re- knowledge. passed up. he's retained, you know, a decent amount of Holly's knowledge. Yeah. Yes,
0: yeah, so they they go exploring. Uh, Crichton's nose literally explodes. <laughs> I was gonna I was gonna
1: mention <laughs> that. Uh, yeah.
0: Unlike unlike McIntyre, is unambiguous. <laughs> <It> has literally <laughs> uh, Crichton and the toaster find multiple life signs, and then you assume that that's Lister and the cockroaches, mm. and then you kind of forget about it, and then. Cat and Rimmer are exploring and find Lister, and I almost missed that it had happened when I was reading it. I was like, "Oh, hang on, then why? Why did they find yeah, life they signs found? as well?" Yeah. yeah, but yeah, it's a it's a nice little clue that not all is well. Yes, and then yeah. Lister's all old now.
1: I like that we get the moment of like where he's angry with Rimmer, like saying, oh, I'll be back, trust me," but that it doesn't last too long because obviously he like he also comes to the conclusion that uh, well, it wasn't deliberate, was it? So we it get it wasn't their it, fault. Yeah, it, it was wasn't their fault. Yes, yeah, so we get. At this point, we've had Lister in better than life, and then emaciated Lister, and then about five minutes of normal Lister before we <laughs> got starved Lister again. A, br- a brief bit on the planet, and now he's like ancient Lister. <laughs> like it, it's like. It's just, it's just... He's, never he's ancient
0: Lister, he's 61. Well, well uh, good point, okay. Craig, Craig Charles is 57 now.
1: Oh, shit.
0: <laughs> uh, sorry, 56. <laughs> Craig Charles is 56 now, so it's not too far off. Yeah,
1: not too far off. Yeah, so I, I, I think I said ancient because in my memory, he was like somewhere in his 80s because...
0: Well, you're probably picturing Future Echo's yes, old Lister. So. That's exactly what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But he's, he's actually, he's, and he's described as like he's physically he's fitter than he was. He's Sixty-one. Yeah, because yeah. he's spent his like thirty odd years. He spent more than half his life on Garbage World yeah. at this yeah. stage. He's now sixty-one. They say so he spent thirty-four years there.
1: Which is he's, he's, he's surprisingly eager to like get the fuck away and get back on Red <laughs> mm-hmm. Dwarf. To be honest, like, he wants to take it back to the solar system. But why does he want to take it back to the solar? Like you'd expect him to be like, "No, this is definitely my home now." I'm not going anywhere, this is fine.
0: Mm. Yeah, I've not really I've not really thought about that, but it makes no sense to tow it to the solar system. Because there's nothing to gain from doing that.
2: You're going to just create another ice age on the damn thing.
0: Yeah, it's, it's going to fuck up what is built, and like, yeah. you never know how the planet's going to react to being moved again.
1: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, Especially since the planet is a sentient being.
0: There have been previous attempts to navigate the Earth around twice, in fact, by the Daleks. Uh, once in 1964's uh, Dalek Invasion of Earth, and then in 2008's uh, The Stolen Earth slash Journey Ends, but that's that's for another time.
1: God, the Journey Ends has bollocks ending.
0: <laughs> as well as like this amazing land that this is he's, like basically turned this land into arable farming land again, and is um is b- b- built this cockroach society that works as a proper. So like they help him on the farm, he helps them. Uh, he's also he made uh, a shrine to Kachansky out of jasmine, which is just a really lovely little thing. But it's it's a really good job that she's only got two initials uh, that are K, not three. Otherwise, <laughs> that would be a very different message that he was leaving. Dave says that the jasmine is a lovely little understated, bittersweet moment on a par with Moonlight from the Promised Land. Yeah, yeah they don't dwell on it at all. Yeah. He just says, what's that, jasmine? And they sort of nod, understanding each other.
1: Rimmer is very sympathetic towards Lister. He's carrying point. on. He's like since since Better Than Life. It's He's
2: a very different person in this section anyway.
1: Unremarked on. Yeah. But it's there and it's it's nice subtle character development.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And it's whether that's Rimmer's experience of Better Than Life has changed him. Is that the case? Or is it just in response to just how fucked up Lister has been <laughs> for the last <laughs> yeah. however many years?
2: Rimmer just feels terrible well, having unintentionally yeah. left Lister on a planet for thirty four years. I think
0: it's a bit of both. I think Rimmer has improved his personality a little bit since Better Than Life. Um like he's realised a lot of his faults and started to work through some of his issues. But on the other hand, like even Rimmer at his worst couldn't be a shit to Lister at this stage. Lister's been through a lot.
1: We discussed this before, it was basically a giant therapy session for Rimmer. Yeah. Um including like, you know, confronting his Oedipus complex <laughs> And all the rest of it, because he, it was a very directly connected to his psyche, sort of experience, a very intense one. And he's come out the other side thinking, "God, I'm glad to be actually back on this ship with these cunts," and then mm. suddenly realizes, what, you know, that that he values everyone. Well, values list. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, some of them. Yeah,
2: one of them one maybe. Of them maybe.
0: <laughs> and then, yeah, just as this is all established, there's now two listers.
2: Now, this is the <laughs> bit that I forgot about because it really does ring more of sirens than polymorph exactly what i was thinking yeah the way that the old lister turns off the radio signal it gives you the possibility that he might be mm-hmm. the imposter and not the one that mm-hmm. they're looking at because he's saying you know like a gnarled hand comes in from a, you know, behind and switches the radio off you just think oh shit in a way that most bad people like like, you know, surreptitiously turn something off before letting them see something they shouldn't. I honestly couldn't remember at that point. I was like, Oh hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Which which one is the bad one? I can't remember which way this worked and I can't remember which way it was gonna end up being.
1: Okay, yeah, I was gonna say, why didn't he just say, like and get the message to them straight away, but he didn't really know that the or he would have suspected that the polymorph was still conscious and still listening. Yeah. So if it gets the heads up that it's rumbled, then it'll attack.
0: Yeah, later on, he tries to get that message across with machine code so that the polymorph doesn't know. But then <laughs> the toaster just reads it out.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cram pretends he can't read it so that he will kind of can read it without <laughs> alerting him. It's, like, it's just like, you fucking idiot, it says this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, <I'd do> <laughs> So after that bit, we have then essentially a history of how gilfs are a thing. Yeah. Which is amazing. <laughs> Lord,
0: dumb. It's another chapter like the first one that could work as just a standalone Short thing story. on its own. Yeah. And a lot of people in the comments were talking about hitchhikers yes. um, making comparisons to hitchhikers. Yeah. I don't really like... Garbage World, yes, a little bit. But it's this bit in particular that feels really Hitchhikersy to me. Mm-hmm. And that's like I'm not saying it's a rip-off or anything. No. I'm just saying it's a it's, it's, it's a similar style of humor. It's like it's it's Grant Naylor mining the same kind of area for yeah. for comedy.
1: It, it's a slightly sillier place to go. Yeah,
0: and <laughs> scientists. Uh, there's a little side story about scientists discovered that there's a. Gene that makes humans argumentative, but they began arguing so much that they didn't get around <laughs> to publishing it. That is the hitchhiker's thing that's not hitchhiker's Absolutely. In the world. Yeah, it is. It really is thing. And so when, when I got to that bit, I then started reading the rest of the chapter in Peter Jones's voice in my head, and it really <laughs>
1: works. <laughs> yeah, specifically in Hitchhikers, isn't there the, the um, discovery of the infinite improbability drive? And it was a cleared thing that I was thinking of. A really warm cup of, tea. of tea, yeah <laughs> what's the background we get in the TV show again? like we get um, <sighs> it's, a, it's a bit tossed off, isn't it?
0: Well, they say that there are genetically engineered life forms and they don't really go into the how and why it's just an accepted uh, thing yeah. That there are genetically engineered life yeah. forms, and one of these is the polymorph.
2: They do give a little bit of history in in, in polymorph, though, don't they? Because they just say it's like a, it was like meant to be like a weapon that was uh, a, trained a to it's a genetic right. experiment that
0: went wrong. Yeah,
2: it was like meant to sort of change. Oh, and then and then they mention the emohawk, which is a, a separate yeah. version of that, which is the same idea but like with a different purpose.
1: Yeah, so changing that so basically the polymorph is the product of evolution. Yes. Mm. and the the actual start of the, the you know Gelfs is actually really plausible yeah yeah when you think when you break it down if you assume yes you can create life forms then yeah that is that is exactly w- what they'll be created for for sport and then eventually f- for like you know war
2: <laughs> yeah then it would just get out of hand yeah there would be some apex where it would become problematic
0: and the, there is a line of, like, inevitably, just like it did with the Mechanoids, the Gelfs rebelled. Yes. And so it's like, yeah. This is, and also, in the historical context of which it was written, because you can, like, it's 30 years ago now, you can look at it in the, in the context of which it was written. This was right at the end of the Cold War. Like, the Berlin Wall had just gone down, I think, mm-hmm. like, within a year of this being written. Mm-hmm. And so it talks about the Cold War uh, in this chapter of, like, eventually mankind got so good at war that they couldn't do war because they were at stalemate and mutually assured destruction and all that. And so, yeah, it's, it's people that lived through the Cold War and the end was in sight, and they're picturing what happens
1: next, like, where does it go? It uh, turns out it goes kicking the shit out of the Middle East <laughs> to get the, their oil.
0: There was a war just around the corner <laughs> and it caused uh, the following series of Red Dwarf to be reordered on broadcast. <laughs> <laughs> that, that wasn't one of the consequences they predicted.
2: <laughs> so when they, when they used the word gulf, was that meant to be in lieu of the word gulf? They call it the gulf war. So... <laughs> the <laughs> gulf
0: war. Oh, there's a really annoying bit where they talk about a gulf Volkswagen Beetle. And why isn't it a Gulf Golf Golf? <laughs> Volkswagen
2: Golf. Yeah, the idea of a living car. That's really creepy.
0: Yeah, <laughs> bone on the outside that's... and soft bits in the middle. <laughs> like the
1: I don't know, Ted, driving around <laughs> with a mind of its own. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I think I had a mention of this as well. Um, international Debris. Yeah. So there's some real body horror in this section, isn't there? The human cars is... Well, I say human cars. There's, human cars is hilariously repugnant. Human Doug cars. must have popped to the shop at that point. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> he went off to collect the pizzas, and then he
2: came back. This and bit. Rob had written that like, What have
1: you written? Oh, nothing. Not written anything. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I, said, I can't remember the exact description in Polymorph,
1: but is this the first
2: description of Gelfs as an acronym? That's interesting because I don't think they they talk they talk it as a genetically engineered life form in polymorph. Do they actually say Gelf?
0: Yeah, I think the first time we hear Gelf is Camille, yeah. where they say it's a pleasure Gelf. It's interesting they they don't write Gelf as an acronym. They write it as a like it is an acronym. Yeah, uh, they say it stands for genetically engineered life form, but it's not written in written all in caps or anything. No. But the, I think this whole section, like up up to and including now-ish, is the best bit of Better Than Life.
2: I think so. There's so much stuff in here.
0: It's those world-building chapters that really make it. Yeah. they like, pausing from the
1: action every now and then and just, like... Because those things enhance everything about... Like, those bits enhance the TV show for you and yeah. all the books that came before, all the books that come after because you, you can share that world-building with every bit of Red Dwarf you've, you've made, you know? Yeah, anything that grounds you more in, in this universe... And especially like when you realise like how actually quite uh, you know they're always mining for laughs, but they're really quite carefully building up a feeling for this world. And it's like it's not just being done just because ah, that'll be funny. Um, whereas I think for all its for all its goodness, the hitchhik- hitchhikers would hitchhikers would go for a gag, and not really worry too much about the rest of it. Red dwarfs kind of maybe. Uh, taking itself a tiny bit more seriously, and I love that. I love that mm-hmm. it. like, if it's taking itself seriously just enough. It's like old Crystal Maze. <laughs> it's ridiculous, <laughs> but it always took itself seriously just enough to be really compelling. Whereas New Crystal Maze doesn't take itself seriously at all, and therefore is not compelling to me. Yeah. Um. The, 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 yeah. The, that line is very difficult to ride, and these books are perfect at it. Red Dwarf is perfect at it, most of the time.
0: And if we're talking about um, building a world that can be populated and uh, having depth there that can be explored, there are Smegazine strips that are based on this this whole thing. There's one called uh, Greetings from Gulf World. All the, um, the things that are based on the novels, all the strips that are based on the novels in this magazine are drawn by the same person, David Littleton, who's got a really distinctive style of art. Uh, there's a strip called "Greetings from Gulf World," which kind of tells a version of the Gulf Uprising story. Uh, there's a couple of strips: one called "The Shadow Time" and one called "The Aftering," which are based around the polymorphs, but specifically the polymorphs from the book as opposed to the TV series and yeah. like getting in their head, which we'll come to shortly. I would recommend checking those out.
1: The Aftering, I love that.
2: I do love those really strange descriptions that they've like their own language for things. Yeah. Like the shadow time, which is basically then dying. Yeah. But the shadow time is like, that's what they call it. And I kind of like that. It's like whenever you hear those kind of really strange descriptions of something. What was the, what was the, um, I can't remember this now. In in one of the League of Gentlemen books, a mirror baby where she called it a photograph, a mirror baby. And I just thought that was a really cool, like a, a very... Also very creepy. Yeah, but like, she, yeah, it was like a Polaroid camera, but it created mirror babies. And I just thought that was a really strange explanation of what it is, but you totally get what it is. Yeah, but, yeah. like, but the shadow time thing and the aftering and all that kind of stuff, like there's like a, there's like a slight symbolism and a religiousness about the polymorphs in there as well. So It's interesting.
0: It's also it's like when our friend Henry was so drunk that he couldn't remember the word for wrists, and so came up with hand ankles. Hand yeah. ankles, it just worked perfectly.
1: <laughs> the 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 afterings a bit like the polymorph said. Uh, I'm after shape shifting. <laughs> <laughs> everyone's Irish
0: uh, but no yeah this this whole section getting into the polymorph's head is it's one of those things where again we've said this so many times before but it's the kind of thing you can only do in the novel like we yeah. learn so much more about the polymorph we actually get it from his point of view Yeah, it's a creature that has to survive and like he's just running off instincts He he can't plan ahead he's just doing whatever it takes to survive and he's not trying to be evil he just needs food yeah, but actually getting into a polymorph's head and and seeing things from his point of view is amazing.
1: Yeah, the bit where it's like, where it's it's seeing the new emotions from from Crichton. It's like, oh yes, good build up emotions. That's basically us like looking into a microwave as um, a bit of leftover lasagna is heating up. And you're like, oh good, yes.
0: <laughs> this bit also uh, when they when they deal with the polymorph Crichton in the toaster. It's Chekhov's ashtrays.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) Uh, Crichton jams a couple of metal ashtrays into the toaster's grill to shut him up when he's doing the machine code thing, and then he later uses them as a
1: weapon to kill the (laughs) polymorph.
2: Or does he? (laughs) Well,
1: yeah, exactly. Yeah, he does. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, he does. There's a second polymorph, right?
2: It births another one, doesn't
1: it?
0: That's the—that's the idea, isn't it? Oh, it births another one. It creates a, it a, a... a chewing gum.
1: Because because that other one yeah. can change. Like I, I know it's it's only changing into simple things, but it's changing really quickly in a way that the other polymorph couldn't. Mm.
0: So is it a second polymorph? Oh, yeah, or... I think it's a second polymorph. I think is it's, it? I, think it's... I I was wondering if it was like the polymorph was able to kind of split into two. Keep his real self in the tiny piece of chewing gum, and the re- and the re- the thing that they killed was like a dummy, like a brainless dummy version of it. The
2: shadow time was the death of the first part. Oh uh, yeah, because uh, that's what he says. Because he said that. Because he said that. that, that oh, I will I will quote from the book. He just says, and then the shadow time came, and with it the pain, and that's when he starts choking in inverted commas, and then he right. creates the piece of chewing gum, and then. It, oh, mind course. you, no, he says because off sank back onto the couch exhausted, so it's not exactly, it's not
0: dead. Well maybe like there is a it's thing in him nature birth. In various species. I think it's just spawning, give birth. Yeah, yeah, it spawns, it gives birth, and then it's just a
2: bit of a husk. And then it will, and then and it's weakened, it and it will die. Yeah. but it will have created something before it dies. Okay. Yeah.
1: I think I think I think at least two of us can understand what it's like to be an empty husk after reproducing. <laughs> <laughs> so tired. <laughs> And yet,
0: the the way that they... Okay, we're now established that it's a second polymorph. Uh, so either that there's a second polymorph or that the polymorph is still alive. The way that that's revealed is amazing. It's done via italics. Yeah. yeah. that wouldn't like It wouldn't necessarily come across if you just let, listen to the audiobook, but like all of a sudden... Because previously, when we were in the polymorph's head, it was all written in italics to differentiate it from Crichton and the toaster, etc. And just all of a sudden, there's suddenly being a bit of italics again. Just makes you. That's what tips you yeah. off that there's still a polymorph around. That's a brilliant piece. Of, yeah, yeah. It's so
1: elegant. It's the ongoing thread of just of, of Grant Naylor's um, incredibly simplistic tricks and style to their to their prose that just can get across so much, just using the form perfectly, basically.
0: Yeah, writing for the medium. Yeah, yeah. That they're using. And so yeah, then when we get back onto Red Dwarf, it's basically just polymorph, like the entire episode of polymorph, mm. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. Which is, it's weird. It, it's, I think it's, it's not often in the novels that there is so much that's a direct lift that has so little changed. It's like, yeah. it's virtually the whole episode. Yeah. And there are changes. There are variations, which we might as well go into because I've written almost all of them down. <laughs> but it is basically the entire episode with a few changes. It's not like they take... Elements from polymorph and mix it into other things like mm-hmm. they had that they did with me squared and like they did with Crichton. And it's uh, it not like they've massively expanded polymorph like they did with Better Than Life. Like, once they've got past that initial bit with the polymorph that's on Garbage World, then this is just the episode,
1: yeah. yeah. And it's not like it's bolted on unnaturally, like, it flows very naturally. Like, yeah. they put the legwork in to set it up because obviously all the new polymorph stuff is. A huge amount of work, to, yes, to set this up. But Lister, you know, getting back onto the ship after thirty years, having his shower, having his be- favorite meal, like all that kind of leads really nicely into mm. the yeah. shami kebab um, opening and and stuff. It's just. I don't think we needed the boxer short scene like in prose. In prose that that just yeah. seems like let's just put the lot in because it's the best scene in the show. You know, we need to have that in. Um I just I don't know, maybe I'm being unkind. I think
2: they would feel it would be lacking or missing if it well, if it wasn't put in, people would have maybe
1: wondered why. Yeah. But at the
2: time I think it was one of the you know, one of the, the best things they'd ever done in terms of like an audience reaction. So by
1: a mile, yeah. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, series three, and it was series three was the most recent series. So.
2: <laughs> I do like the description of uh, Crichton trying to like the shami kebabs are almost so I like a like a really antsy bomb that's going to blow up at any point if he he moves them too quickly. Yeah, like he's handling nuclear waste. It
1: makes me so hungry thinking about these.
2: (laughs) It's got three sets of oven gloves on and he's holding them at a distance with tongs and yet you don't go near them like they just would suddenly
1: implode. You don't want to be touching your groinal socket after touching a shammy kebab that's that hot. Oh,
2: okay.
0: Oh, the groinal socket. Yes.
2: Go on, are going to mention that?
0: The, The whisk attachment... Uh, that he uses it's implied that it's just like uh, when, when it finally appears on screen in Ticket to Ride <laughs> like yeah. the whisk is on the end of a long cable <laughs> yeah. so that he can hold the whisk in his hand yes But here, it's just a whisk that's like attached directly to his groin. And so he's basically humping the mixing bowl.
2: That is exactly what I was going to say. And it it, it does remind me of watching Richie fuck a fishbowl in Bottom. It is an absolutely extraordinary image, is that? Because it is worse. It is so much worse than just the vacuum attachment.
0: Yeah, the big floppy vacuum. Robert would have had a field day with that scene.
2: <laughs> that would not pass.
0: That would have put it above a 15 in, yeah. in 1989,
2: I think. I wonder if the conversation actually happened in series 7 about that because i would be like could he just actually have it on the front of his like no no it needs to be he has to have it. He has to have it that way around. <laughs> otherwise it just looked horrendous it's it
0: yeah it it's like it's too close to being an actual rude thing like a huge like giant vacuum <coughs> hose sized thing is is like an exaggerated comedy film. but it, if it's like the size and shape <laughs> of a penis
2: <laughs> then it's just rude but it does completely tie into the whole how ridiculous the design Crichton is as a thing. Like, yeah. no one actually thought about that until they got it made. And it was like, oh, hang on, that looks a bit... Mm, well, it's too late to change it now. Which is quite realistic, I think. Yeah. Exactly. You know, the amount of times people have made logos and things that look incredibly rude until someone points it out and they go, oh, yeah, yeah, we didn't think about that. Like, there was an OGC, was it, or something? There was a logo, that looked like a man having a wank. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if London, you turn it on its Olympics, side. The
1: uh, Olympics, Lisa Simpson. Said oh, what's a giraffe I know yeah. oh, that
2: was uh, the Resident Evil 6 uh, logo or
1: something.
0: I was spit-roasting a giraffe.
1: There we go. Ding.
0: <laughs> Mark that down on your bingo cards. <laughs>
1: uh, cultural Marxism.
0: <laughs> so yeah, changes between the Book in the TV version, other than Crane's whisk attachment.
1: It, it was amazing to me that Mister Rat appeared so early on in the um in the <laughs> in <laughs> in Red Dwarf's history before, well before Series Twelve. This is
2: an interesting point. I was going to bring this up as one of my small points. Lister hates rats, apparently. Mm. So it's interesting that Mister Rat was a, a potential, unless it's just like because it's an alternate universe. It's like oh, it's an alternate
1: universe where he loves rats so much that he got a rat. Well, in the
0: TV. Universe, his second biggest fear is snakes. In the book universe, his second biggest fear is rats. So it does change from universe to yeah. universe. Oh, okay. Do you think it was because of how unrealistic the rubber snake was in Polymorph that they decided to change it?
2: Uh, someone said something pretty much to that effect. Oh shit! Which still says the change to a rat perhaps indicates Rob and Doug's dissatisfaction with the snake prop. Even if that doesn't make it entirely make logical sense. Yeah, I can I can kind of see.
1: Yeah, basically, this book is just a revenge mission against Norman Lovett and that snake prop. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't think it works as well. I don't know. It's one of those things where it's hard to tell because I'm so familiar with the TV version that any small change just feels weird. And I'm not judging it fairly, but I prefer snakes to rats.
2: It's not just a rat, though, as well. With this one, it's exacerbated even more by the fact that it's a plague rat. This is an it's meant MSS to be like a, mm. a massive two-foot-long rat with slaver that ends up in his mouth. And it's like everything about it is just like a horror film it's not even it's in
0: it it's, it's oh, fair enough
2: yeah obviously the, the the thing the film the thing it's very strong in this bit of the the book with the polymorph and the way that it moves and the way that it distorts and turns it one thing into the way another, it was killed like,
1: by Torque actually in the previous thing is yeah thing thing like gross like just like visceral
2: gore and just it just talks about how it's just, it just looks like just everything it just looks like a mess. Yeah.
1: Whereas in the TV show, it was basically it's, it's, what it looks like was basically it just kind of defaulted to what it changed into to Scare Lister to the point of breaking. You see what I mean? Like it turns yeah. up as in that guise, even though it, it was uh, that guise was only supposed to be, to, you know. So the, its default form is, um, is easier to describe in a book than it is just a show on screen. Mm. But yeah, yeah, I think rats, like rats the rat obviously lent itself to more horrific imagery when writing and i think
0: yeah in prose maybe yeah you're right yeah. Uh, the the rat does work better i think if it in, in the tv series if he was being menaced by a rat then that's not as scary like initially as a massive fucking snake yeah but yeah when you get into the description of it that you couldn't do on tv then yeah yeah, yeah. and then it just kind of carries on being yeah <laughs> almost exactly polymorph <laughs> like the next few chapters i've got we've got very few comments that are specifically <laughs> about those chapters I've got very few notes. I've made one note that the dialogue is a bit less snappy than the TV version. I do like chapters 13 and 14, uh, if you're reading along at home. That they've effectively got two chapters that are completely continuous. There's no like break of scene or location or character or anything. But they've done a fake cliffhanger there, which is, again, it's a really effective way that Grant Naylor are using the medium the bit around the yellow supply truck where they've loaded up the supply (laughs) truck and Rimmer goes ah it's the truck and then that's the end of a chapter and you think oh fuck right this is it this is them going to be battling against the truck and then the next chapter starts with oh it wasn't the truck after they've blown it up (laughs) that's
1: another Rimmer fuck up as well we don't go deep into this one but I bet you we got the same hot feeling it
2: also shows like the emo hot level of paranoia they have with everything potentially being a polymorph at that point that
1: does get
0: expanded upon later yeah. yeah I was hoping that there'd be more clarification in the book as to you know the heat-seeking missiles that are going around and they're following the cat yeah. and they're relentless and they're all-powerful and they can't be stopped. What exactly is about a lift door that's completely impenetrable to them? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's not clear in the TV series. It's not clear in the book either. There's two things I like about the bit with Cat and Gen- uh, Jenny Mutant. Uh, one is that I don't have to look at Francis Barber. <laughs> and the other... Is the description of the cat lost a short one-sided struggle with a large cheesy grin, and that is exactly what Danny does in the in the show. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. It's like he's <laughs> trying not to, but he can't help
1: it. They've taken they've taken their scene notes straight out of the script, haven't they? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's great. It's weird. That, um, it's extra extra sexualized, isn't she in the the book version?
0: There's a comment about that. Uh, Dave. Says the polymorph woman who seduces Cat feels far more explicitly described as a male sex object here. I don't know if Frances Barbara will have been willing to don an orange PVC suit and thigh length boots.
1: Cat <laughs> has learnt nothing from Better Than Life. <laughs> <laughs> <Not yet.
0: laughs> Doesn't it say that she's carrying a whip as well in the yeah, book? Yeah, I think it's, just, it's, it's <laughs> Come more on, of a mate. cartoon
1: character really, yeah. yeah.
0: Which, to coin a phrase, is exactly the level uh, needed to fool the cat. Yeah. Like, if it was any other character, they'd be like, hang on, that's a bit weird. This perfect sexy dominatrix has just turned up.
1: You have to overwhelm his senses a little bit, especially since he's, like, he's he seems to be going through a transition at the moment of being a bit more aware and a bit more involved and maybe a little mm. bit smarter. So I think it's probably the last time you could probably trick him like this because he is he's so much more involved, so much more part of the crew.
0: Yeah, there's an inconsistency, really, with the cat here. Uh, Yeah, he's incredibly astute at times in this book. And I think it's because Lister's away for a lot of this section. Obviously, Holly's off. They just need someone who's slightly smarter than the cat that's not Crichton and Rimmer. Yeah. (laughs) And so the cat gets a lot of lines that aren't really that catty.
1: The dynamic doesn't ever really settle, does it, in the books? Like, they're always struggling to fill the gaps that the TV series kind of just naturally had, like Crichton's struggling to fill the gap. He's supposed to be struggling. You know, Holly's gone yeah. and you've got the toaster in there. And then the, yeah, the cat isn't quite where he, you know, settled in one place. Rimmer isn't settled in one place.
0: They're kind of more equals mm. in this a lot of the time. They don't really have the same power dynamics and, and like the, the difference in intelligence and aptitude. I mean, it does. It changes throughout the books, though, as well. And I think, yeah, because there's no status quo in the books. Uh, they never settle back into those patterns. They're always in peril. They're always in the middle of doing something.
1: Something huge, as well. It's always something life changing is happening. Yeah,
0: they don't really have time to go and yeah. back into those default versions of the characters.
1: And, and now Lister's in his early sixties. <laughs> yeah, he is the angry Lister from the TV series. But um, I think. I find this quite easy to imagine actually. Like I think the, the angry angry old Lister is just inherently kind of more amusing to me than just, you know, angry normal Lister. I think it's it's mm. a nice fit. Um like you know, just imagine him being being crotchety.
0: The biggest change between T V and book is how Rimmer gets got by yeah. the polymorph. There's no Rimmer's mom being shagged by sixty one year old Lister, unfortunately. <laughs> uh but effectively the polymorph hacks into rimmer and yeah. like a little virusy type thing goes into the hologram projection suite and we get like a basically a montage of angry moments from rimmer's life which is just really good that that's rimmer all over it's like any any insight that you get into what makes rimmer tick and what has made him the way he is is always going to be enjoyable
1: it's so creepy. It kind of surprises you as well. You're lulled into this. Oh, this is polymorph. This is polymorph. And then he's then he says, like, it's inside me. Like, what? what? Yeah. And so it just completely takes you by surprise. You're just like, man, that's creepy.
2: The audiobook version of this segment is really, really interesting. Because the way they've used audio to kind of denote a montage of ideas every time they get to a specific section where 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 it dot dot dots it basically fades yeah. out until the next bit kicks in and, and, and it's over like a swathe of memories just slowly just yeah. making him feel worse and worse and worse and every time you can hear it, like he never says the word angry to begin with and it just, it just makes him so yeah. angry and then even that becomes less and, and even that just gets more and more prevalent and more and more prevalent and it's just really really well done and i think the the audiobook like uh, capsi mentioned earlier was like a more than they needed to do for that bit really works for the for the bros and it just it, it works really well.
0: Well, that's news to me because I didn't have the unabridged version of Better Than Life as a kid. I had the unabridged Infinity uh, massive like six tape set, yeah. uh, but I only had the abridged version of Better Than Life, and in the abridged version, they basically cut out all of this. Yeah, in the abridged version. Spoilers for something that we're about to talk about um Lister has his heart attack directly after the first polymorph attack back on garbage world, so none of this stuff that's basically the retread of the episode happens at all, and it's I think it's quite a good call if you're going to cut anything from mm. the book, yeah, because this did drag a little bit when I was reading it because like I was so I was enjoying the first half of this part so much all the stuff around Garbage World and the Black Hole and the world building stuff and then it just like as a proportion of the part like half of it is a TV episode transcribed with a few changes and it's just a bit of a shame really
1: if
2: if we're reading this book having never like seeing the yeah. episode, then you wouldn't think like that. I think it's just because, yeah. like a lot of people, especially in the comments, a lot of people were saying that when it got to bits that were basically rehashed prose or rehashed bits of episode, you kind of almost not switch off, but you kind of sort of run an autopilot through that bit of the book. Yeah. You don't yeah. really take it in as easy, even though there might be subtle differences and a bit of, you know, slight changes and stuff, but. I've noticed that a lot of it is You kind of coast through it going Oh yeah this is the bit I don't You could literally just think Oh I might just skip this bit Because I don't need to read it Like I already know yeah. what's going to happen here Start to gloss over Yeah, yeah. you don't really think about it But when it comes Like I said When it comes to the more interesting bits Well not the interesting bits The bits that are the more You know divergent bits From the, what we see in the TV show That's when your brain kind of switches back on
0: And one of those really uh, <laughs> Something that they changed Really took me out of my stride quite a lot which was the joke uh, that Crichton gives. of When he said you have all the wit, charm, and self-possession of, in the TV series, he says, of uh, Alsatian dog after a head swap operation. In the book, he says all the charm, wit, wit, charm, and self-possession of Jane Mansfield after the car accident, which is a really horrible and unnecessary <laughs> joke. Yes. It's really jarring. It's not a Red Dwarf-type joke at all. That's <laughs> like taking the piss out of a real-life horrible thing.
2: Well, it's Crichton being genuinely but unpleasant. It's Crichton's also, guilt,
0: yeah, yeah, it's guilt-free Crichton, and so they make guilt-free Crichton far more extreme than he is in the TV version. Yeah. I mean, there's a bit where he he walks around waving his middle finger around. <laughs> uh, when I was reading it, I thought it's a real shame that they because they say at one point Crichton says "screw Lister and screw you." It would have been better if he'd have said "fuck Lister and fuck you" because you're you're writing it in a book and you want to shock. If Red Dwarf ever was to use the F-word, then this was the perfect place to use it. Oh, yeah, this right. is
2: where Crichton goes back to being David Ross Crichton rather than Robert Welling Crichton mm-hmm. as well because it's like swivel on it punk. It's that level of fuck yeah. you. That's yeah, why yeah, I get out of that bit. Mm-hmm. It's weird.
0: And then in the scene the where they're all the alternate versions and Rimmer's chairing the meeting scene, the toaster's there because Holly's not there and and he's chipping in with the, with the lines that Holly would have uh, and then Crichton kills him.
1: <laughs>
0: so, after, And I'd forgotten that that had happened. And so, after all that we'd been saying earlier, I had now Tork is a main character in this book. Tork is fulfilling this role, he's going on missions with them, and he's doing all this stuff. And now he's dead forever. He's,
1: he's the original Katarina.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A bit weird. Uh, Dave brings this up: says that Crichton killing the toaster is pretty brutal. Yeah it Mm. is he doesn't really deserve it but then he has been quite annoying through the whole thing so you're kind of meant to feel like as if it's like a thank god but you don't you kind of feel a bit sorry for the toaster because it's just like I think that's the point of it it's meant to be a senseless killing isn't it that's the idea yeah Mm. and it
1: actually ties back to so a comment we didn't mention back when they were on Garbage World just after the Polymorph was picked up when Crichton was throwing things at Torky, Pete Part Three says, I realise this is a setup so that Torky can supposedly defeat the polymorph, but Crichton's bouts of violence just don't feel right here, especially when you consider the emotion which is stolen from him shortly, will be his defining one, guilt.
2: Well
0: maybe it's one of those things where it's okay because it's a it's another machine,
1: it's yeah. another AI. That he feels superior to. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, killing him is one thing. But um, you know, throwing stuff at him is one thing. so killing him. Yeah, throwing shit at him thing. seems
0: fine. Yeah, actually, killing him is something that yeah, the that, that normal Crichton wouldn't do. It's yeah. only guilt-free Crichton that would do that, and it does it does set up how guilt-free Crichton is so much more extreme. Probably the most mm. extreme change, really.
2: I think also with the if you think about it, in terms of the core primaries that Crichton runs off, technically speaking, the toaster was endangering human life at that point, so he was able to override. Yeah, you know, his, yeah. his instinct True. in order to yeah, was a bit of law kind of thing. Okay. Nice.
0: Basically, the episode Polymorph ends in much the same way that it does in the TV uh, series. Oh, I do like that. There's a uh, description that the emotions get returned to them physically. It's like, yeah, a, like whirlwind a whirlwind gets released and it sort of washes its way into them. Mm. That's interesting.
1: I think that is that is shown in a sort of a way in the TV show. I have a, I have a kind of a feeling, or like a, that, 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 there's some sort of kind of like I don't know force being like tr- they're, they're trying to communicate that doesn't really come across.
2: It might have been done in sound. Yeah, yeah, like a rush. Yeah, I think obviously yeah. if, if Remastered had had the money, they'd have probably tried to do something. But then, yeah. In the
0: midst of the end of Polymorph, it breaks for a while, and there's this little tiny atmospheric teaser Mm. uh, is there as chapter nineteen, and that really works. It's really creepy. It's really effective. Basically, teasing that one of them's about to die, but they but it doesn't reveal who.
2: It doesn't say who. It's quite shocking when you kind of going through because obviously it's like oh no
1: one know how it happened. It was like what 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 are you talking about? (laughs) <laughs> it's like it's really out of left field. It's you know, unless but you. I know what happens in polymorph. Nothing happens in polymorph. What are you talking about? <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. This is where it varies. And yeah, it's 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 pretty definitive. It says they were dead. That was cold hard fact. There's no going back. Now there's three of them. There is going back. So, yeah, I guess that wraps it up for this, uh, for this <laughs> novel, and indeed all future novels. Lister is dead. Yeah. Uh, that's they the had end of to the stop
1: book. making the TV show because they killed Lister in the, in the books and it just didn't seem, yeah. it wouldn't have fit the canon for to carry on with the TV show. So.
0: Yeah, and then once we get to the end of this chapter, there are
1: <laughs> what yeah. is it,
0: about 12 pages yeah. left of
1: the next part. So that These must be are going to be the, be... the most analysed pages of any Red Dwarf <laughs> book in three weeks' time, two weeks' time. But, yeah
0: um that's it now though lister is lister is completely and utterly dead and so who yeah. knows what's going to
1: happen in those few chapters yeah and they just find him don't they just you know like uh, uh, like it is this jarring thing of just like this this whole episode probably not deliberate but like all of this you were pretty much comfortable with and then blah, you, you, they hit you with it they hit you with you know lister dying kind of at the end of like a familiar bit basically just yeah. i mean even reading it at the time I don't know. It's actually it's close enough to the end of the book that you you'd probably that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah. that you might
0: actually think that this is it forever. Yeah, yeah. Because there's only a few chapters left, and yeah, this could be it. We will talk about deaths of characters more as this uh, series of book clubs goes on. Mm. Spoilers, but yeah, it is. (laughs) It is. It's genuinely sad as well.
2: It's heartbreaking when you when they don't even say it. They just. They just insinuate that he's dead because Crichton just reaches Cryan over and closed his, his eyes, and that's it. And yeah, that's yeah. like that. There's no mention of it. it just you know, they don't say it.
0: Yeah, it says so much mm. without spelling it out.
2: And that cheerful note,
0: <laughs> I think that just about wraps up our main discussion. But fear not, uh, because there's going to be some jolly music, and then we'll be uh, poking our nose around our reader's small points. <laughs> <laughs> So we'll start with Pete Part 3, who's actually got quite a big point, um, comparatively speaking, compared to most of the rest of our listeners. (laughs) He says, uh, (laughs) it's said in She Rides that the Ice Age on that planet has been in place for countless millennia, and the vagueness is somewhat contradicted in Garbage World when we get a definitive history. The status of the Ice Age being otherwise unchanged opens up two possibilities. One, the planet hasn't had a recent orbit at all. It recently arrived in that region of space and Crichton's judgement that it was ripped out of its orbit is correct, but only in so much as it was ripped out of orbit about three million years ago and it doesn't find a new one until Lister plays Paul. Or, the planet has been in that same orbit for countless millennia and Holly doesn't plot that far ahead, even with an IQ of 12,000.
2: That is the largest small point I have ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> The whole thing about the planet has been the same orbit, and Hod no, doesn't plot that far ahead. It's like, yeah, there there is a whole thing about like you can predict the the orbit of like two objects against each other, but when it comes to anything more than that, it becomes essentially chaos theory. Mm. So it is really hard to kind of plot mm, scientifically sure. to plot the three-body problem, basically.
0: And also, it's Lister that doesn't take it into account, rather than Holly.
2: Exactly. Yeah, I suppose. No. I mean, Lister just basically thinks he can do it when actually he was wrong. He can't do it. Yeah, and yeah. Holly was right. As they should have just did. Holly did plan it. And if he had done Holly's coordinates, then Garbage World might not have happened.
0: Which would be a shame, because it's a really entertaining bit.
2: Yeah, it's really good. So I'm glad Lister fucked it up.
0: Quinn uh, says, despite my internal image of the books from this point being very series three to five for obvious reasons, I still try and keep in my head the image continuity of the books. So I try and keep the series one to two bunk room, drive rooms, etc. But I also try and keep and succeed usually the images of Lister and Cat being woefully unwell. <laughs> I really struggle, and I also struggle with this of remembering that Lister's sixty-one a lot of the time mm. because the period where he's old, most of what we get is rehashed um, TV script, and so it, it's impossible to picture those scenes with anything other than the TV version for me. I just my, I don't have the imagination to override what I've seen on mm-hmm.
1: TV. It's too strong. The association is yeah, just way yeah. too strong. There's some crazy shit that the books do, and I think I think that the, the reason why some of it fails is just it's purely because of you know that struggle, that clash.
2: It's interesting though, because when it comes to the, the the acid rain and whatnot, it's it's always been it's always been strange to me when I think of how big Starbuck is supposed to be in the book. The, the sense of scales kind of thrown off a bit. I don't know whether Starbuck is genuinely massive, or because it's like he drops a piece of thing down the 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 hole that he creates with acid rain, and it takes like you know ten seconds to to hit the floor, and it's like the how fucking it's about thirty foot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's quite a you know unless it's just <clears throat> like unless to him it just seems like it's forever, mm. and he's just you know... yeah unreliable narrator.
0: Also, another thing that is weird about this in terms of the ships, they have got Starbug, they've got Blue Midget, and they've got White Giant, and that's it. <laughs> They have one of each of those crafts yeah, and they have if one they so they've lost Starbuck. They, yeah. they blow up Blue Midget to get rid of the Polymorph and so they've only got one shuttlecraft left and that's it forever.
2: The, Dave says exactly that. He yep. says um, basically this version of Reddorf doesn't appear to have a fleet. It just says one of each. Uh, just three shuttlecraft seems too far. It's little for a ship the size of a city.
1: Well, instead of lots of little ones, they've got like uh, one massive one of each. <laughs> 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 like if Red Dwarf still doesn't have a fleet,
0: mm. it should just update its Twitter app and it will be there. <laughs> By the time we release this podcast, they've may have got rid of fleets already.
1: Yeah, it's cool. It's cool that White Giant kind of comes in here because it's not called White Giant in the original TV scripts, was it? It was White yeah. Midget there, so it's kind of been kind of transposed yeah. and slightly so, changed. Yeah, not only do it they all cool. have a
0: unique color, they all also have a unique name.
1: Yeah, because I think uh, the, I don't think name, there's such yeah. a
2: thing as a, a, a sun that can be a White Midget. I think a White Giant is something they can be.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, that's true. Uh, no, I don't think a, s- a star could be a starbug. <laughs> oh yeah, sure. <laughs> it might yeah. be. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot. There's a whole thing about the design of starbug being the reason why it's called mm-hmm. that. But yeah,
2: they, they, that was the whole thing, wasn't it? It was like it was meant to be white, and they called it white midget because it was like oh, it was a spacey name, and then it became blue, so it was a blue midget. I don't even know if blue midgets a type of star. I don't know if that's just something they just made up. Like, no, I think they just
0: changed. They yeah, changed yeah, changed the color and then synonym, yeah. a synonym for dwarf. I think is how that came about. Um, Shoes Have Souls uh, says about the toaster it's quite strange as the character was a main character in this book and in White Hole and then had to wait a quarter of a century before the next appearance. Uh, maybe yeah. Rob and Doug just had a lot of toast in the late 80s early
1: 90s. Yeah, and they got fucking sick of toast from that point on. I mean that might be
2: true. That might be genuinely born out of like when they were writing they were just making shitloads of toast and then got sick of it and became... The thing <laughs> we'll have to yeah. we'll have to start digging into this
1: stuff. Think about the level of restraint because, in some ways, Doug, Doug didn't have any restraint whatsoever. Because, or like even both of them, because Ace came back, Dwayne Dibley came back, uh, Ace came back again, the Dibley family came back in series eight, and yet n- during none of that period did they. Did they bring back Talkie Mm. Toaster, which you'd think would be like a no-brainer if you're doing that sort of thing anyway? Especially as in series eight they had
0: the original bunk set, uh, bunk room set, and everything.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, Could have got John Lennon.
0: They should do a a two toasters special, like the like Doctor Who special where they have both versions of the toaster. (laughs) You'll
1: be careful; they can't touch each
0: other.
2: Between two toasters, it's like an interview show where you have (laughs) (laughs) people.
0: (laughs) We'll come back to another uh, small point from a listener, because that narratively will work well for us to include it later in the podcast. But we've got our own small points to whap out now. So Lister, in order to uh, ingratiate himself with the cockroaches, eats a bit of sofa. And I, th- I think there was a bit of a conversation in the comments about how exactly does one eat a sofa and like how does that all work? But it rang a bell with me and I googled and, yeah, I'll put it in the... Um, Put it in the show notes, but I did a bit of googling and there is a, a woman who is addicted to eating sofas according to this article in the Metro. <laughs> <laughs> While most people have a sweet tooth love munching on cakes and biscuits, one US mom has a very different type of craving. <laughs> Mother of five Adele Edwards from Florida is addicted to another kind of snack. The sweet kind. <laughs> course from florida <laughs> she loves chomping oh. on household items such as elastic bands and rubbers but her biggest weakness is snacking on the polyester stuffing in her sofa so it is possible to eat a sofa apparently
1: it is absolutely possible to eat a sofa so far so good haha <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then in the end he had to make he had to make a new sofa out of toilets and fluff from something uh, vacuum, cleaner fluff. <laughs> vacuum cleaner fluff yeah
0: in bin bags <laughs> which does sound really comfortable i wouldn't mind it yeah <laughs> Do you two have any small points?
1: Well, I have one small point. It was saying on Garbage World. So Lister um, says that they've encountered a polymorph before, kind of crept into their camp and um, mm. caused caused some mischief before they killed it. So if Lister knows that the polymorphs are hanging around, why didn't he have any sort of suspicion that the Rimmer and the cat were polymorphs? And, That's true. Yeah. yeah. Especially because they don't look flirting. any different than when he don't look saw them. They look any different and he'd be just like, what? He just assumed that that was just them. I
2: think yeah, it would be weird because it's it, you kind of want that reveal to happen later. But if Lister all of a sudden tackled the cat, saying you know, and asking him <laughs> questions about you know, yeah, it does make me yeah. Oh, say, it reminds me of something else. But, it's, but he could have just like hit it. He could have attacked him and gone. Sorry, I thought. No, nah, never mind. Like and then and then that that would then run back later to be why he attacked him.
1: Yeah, it's true. It would it would spoil the reveal, wouldn't it? Yeah,
2: like you wouldn't realize um... you wouldn't really think about what it would be that Lister thought he was, but that would then tie back later on when he said, you know.
1: I've been thinking, like, are there any clues in, like, how he was, because we don't get, we're not in Lister's head during that conversation. Um, Like, are there any clues? is Is he kind of subtly testing them, or kind of keeping it in the back of his mind that there might be polymorphs and like when he invites them back, I like, can be very careful. I don't know.
0: No, I think because we, as the reader, don't know about it yet, yeah. it's um, just it's not relevant. Just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the, whole really, the whole book's ruined. It doesn't really stand up. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of polymorphs, another of my small points is that there's a bit where uh, when the polymorph is trapped in blue midget um, that's about to be shot off into space and he's trying to find a way out, he changes he rapidly changes into all kinds of different things just to kind of get his bearings and figure out a way to escape he just like changes into lots and lots of different things and that retrospectively gives a reason for why the polymorph in the tv series did the same thing oh, yeah. when it first went on board red dwarf and just like really rapidly changed into loads of things for seemingly no reason other than it's a cool, funny thing to show a TV audience. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but now, retrospectively, there's a reason for why it does that. That's the polymorph getting its bearings. It's like it's cycling through all these uh, shapes that it knows to try and figure out what's going to work best in this situation. Oh, discovering
1: new shapes based on the the minds of its new prey. Yeah, like it's yeah. like it's practicing. Oh, pardon me. There's no one here. I'll have a bit of a practice. Just <laughs> <laughs> yeah, shape shift like no one's watching. <laughs>
0: Uh, Another great bit of using the medium, uh, using typography, is when they're talking about um, the rat uh, in the polymorph section. It says, uh, Lister watched in adrenaline-inducing slow motion as the rat landed on his face. (laughs) And on his and face are all on separate lines. Yeah. (laughs) So it's like, on his face. Fate it's like a meme. It's like it's being revealed. It's like Rob and Doug
1: channeled uh, the way internet people speak tw- 30 years later. Yeah. And that's it. That's the tweet. Chris reads that perfectly, as
0: you'd imagine. Finally, one of the trips, one of the montage of Rimmer's angry memories involve him taking a girlfriend home and finding his brother John snogging her in the greenhouse And that's a kind of proto version of the Fiona Barrington story from Inquisitor where it was him in the greenhouse with the girl and he thought he got lucky but it turned out he had his hand in warm compost. (laughs) So having successfully rooted our noses through those small points it's time to have a good old sniff of our small passages. (laughs) This is the bit where we each read out a bit of the book that we particularly like and we were kind of sport for choice on this one thinking about it I'm not sure we're going to do this uh, section next time but we'll cross that bridge when we come
1: to we it we might accidentally read out the entire chapter <laughs> the entire <part. laughs>
0: I think it's me first chronologically this time around I was tempted by um, all the garbage world stuff but everyone's just really familiar with that anyway it's so memorable you don't need me to say it so I'm going to do a bit of the spigotification segment everyone became part of everyone else they threaded together and formed a new whole the W. They weren't four, they were one. The particles that had once formed Rimmer's intelligence, in a blinding flash of empathetic insight, suddenly became aware of the desperate, monumental importance of toast. Instantaneously, the strands that had been the toaster were conscious of the overriding necessity for dressing well, and have a really terrific haircut. The vermicelli that was now the cat tasted the feeling of being mechanical, and knew with unshaken certainty that Silicon Heaven existed, and that the best way to get there was through diligent hoovering. Simultaneously, the macaroni that was Crichton knew what it was like to be Rimmer. He understood what it was like to have had those parents, that childhood, that career, that life. It was impossible to scream, but that's what Crichton was trying to do. The ship was no longer a ship. It was a huge tachyon, a super light particle, howling through a universe outside our own. "'It was a pool, then a wave, then a ball, then a dot, "'then it had no shape, it just was. "'The huge mound of spaghetti slithered across space-time "'and peered into the face of the spinning white disc. "'Look,' said a part of the spaghetti that was mostly rimmer. "'In the centre of the spinning light were six interlocking coils, "'like fibre optics but of a size beyond size. "'The immense hollow cables twisted and undulated "'like the snakes on the gorgon's heads. "'The tubes were of colours that had no meaning to the human eye.' They spun and swirled in a timeless dance of beauty. Not for the first time, Rimmer cursed himself for not bringing his camcorder.
1: <laughs> so 80s, oh my god. <laughs>
0: yeah, everyone's got the <laughs> bones, they can record anything at any time now, granddad.
2: <laughs> I love the. it was a pool, then a wave, then a ball, then a dot. Yeah. Again, that whole thing of trying to describe something that is impossible to imagine.
0: That is indescribable yeah colors that made no sense to the human eye and a super
2: light pie called a tachyon it comes back in holoship as
0: as I was reading it out loud I suddenly had tachyons
2: <laughs> in my head yeah. <laughs> who's next is it me
0: uh, I believe so
2: okay so my section is basically a little bit about the gulf history Blah, 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 blah. Then... <laughs> 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 now... <something's interesting. laughs> uh, then, in the middle of the 20th century, the human race hit a major problem. It got so good at war, it couldn't have one anymore. It spent so much time practicing and perfecting the art of genocide, developing more and more lethal devices for mass destruction, that conducting a war without totally obliterating the planet and everything on it became an impossibility. This didn't make human beings happy at all. <laughs> They talked about how it was maybe it was still possible to have a small, contained war. A little war, if you like. A warret. <laughs> they spoke of conventional wars, limited wars, and this insane option might have even worked. If only people could have agreed on a new set of rules. But people being people, they couldn't. War was out. War was a no-no. And like a small child suddenly deprived of its very favourite toy, the human race mourned and sulked and twiddled its collective thumbs, wondering what to do next. Towards the conclusion of the 21st century, a solution was found. The solution was sport. Sporting events were, in their way, little wars. And with war gone, people started taking their sport ever more seriously. Scientists and theoreticians channeled their energies away from weaponry and into the new arena of battle. And since the weapons of sport were human beings themselves, scientists set about improving them. When chemical enhancements had gone as far as they could go, the scientists turned to genetic engineering super sportsmen and women were grown literally grown in laboratory test tubes around the planet the world's official sports bodies banned the new mutants from competing in events against normal athletes and so a new alternative sports body was formed and set up in competition the gas genetic alternative sports finished normal sport within 2 years Sports fans were no longer interested in seeing a conventional boxing match when they could witness two genetically engineered pugilists who were created with their brains in their shorts and all their other major organs crammed into their legs and feet, leaving their heads solid blocks of unthinking muscle, knock the hell out of one another for hours on end in a way that normal boxers could only manage for minutes.
1: Rob and Doug have been on a night out in Bake Up then.
2: (laughs) Basketball players were grown 20 feet tall. Swimmers were equipped with gills and fins. Soccer players were bred with five legs and no mouths, making after-match interviews infinitely more interesting. (laughs) However, not all breeds of genetic athletes were accepted by the GAS, and new rules had to be created after the 22-24 World Cup, when Scotland fielded a goalkeeper who was a human oblong of flesh, measuring 8 feet high by 16 across, thereby filling the entire goal somehow they still failed to qualify for the second round. Hey. brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I just really that bit about the solid flesh thing. I was like that would look so funny as a, a bit of film. <laughs> but with little tiny hands. Tiny hands there, with, with goal goalkeeper gloves on. Gloves on
0: yeah, absolutely
2: unnecessary goalkeeping gloves on. Cuz
1: that's the rules. You have yeah. to we have to wear goalkeeper and a cap. gloves. <laughs> what I like about that gag written in the late 80s. Is that between then and now, Scotland have qualified for precisely two major international tournaments. <laughs> yeah.
2: So it still rings true
1: in thirty years. Yeah, yeah, they've
0: now qualified for a third, but it hasn't happened. Oh, yet. I
1: thought this was the second. I thought it was no, you're a ninety-six and France, ninety-eight. Oh, no of course, course you in ninety-six. Fair <laughs> enough. Okay, so three, three in thirty years. <laughs> well,
0: yeah. Little did they know that. Beyond this, like the concept of Scotland even getting to the first round of an international <laughs> tournament it was a shocking thing. Yeah. like from It took them from 1998 World Cup until literally the week we recorded this to qualify for another tournament. <laughs> and that's only because of the existence
1: of John McGinn. Exactly. They've got McGinn. Super John McGinn.
2: I, I forgot about the, the imagery of the boxing... Uh, Gelf oh, until I got so to it and then realised how ridiculous it was. You so
0: know what it's like. It's like what's his chops from the Turtles? Or Krang is <laughs> just like Krang's like guardian in Turtles. that's just pure meat.
1: <laughs> Present your passage. So I've got a short one, short passage. This is the world according to polymorph, part one. <laughs> the pale waxy figure on the couch listened to them bickering. The words themselves meant nothing, but the shapes and colours of their emotions were new and exciting. As soon as its energy returned, it would feast. <laughs> it had lived for so <laughs> long. Oh, that
2: was good. <laughs> you're, putting,
0: you're putting on a voice to read this, but it's only slightly different from your
1: love <laughs> It had that lived for so long on tiny cells of insect emotion. <laughs> Mainly fear, but the little snacks it managed to cannibalize from weaker members of its species. And the little snacks it managed to cannibalize from weaker <laughs> members of its species. <laughs> With every shape change left it drained and temporarily helpless. And now, the shadow time was almost on it. It would need nourishment and sustenance if it was to survive the aftering. It didn't think these things, it simply knew them. It had no capacity for abstract thought. It couldn't plan. It was a matter of instinct. The instinct to survive moment by moment for as long as possible. I dunno why I did that. <laughs> I quite liked it.
2: Is it was all right? <laughs> I had to mute
1: uh, myself because I don't want to put you
0: off. It
2: I muted
0: myself. No, I I wanted to put him off, but... <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, was, uh, I enjoyed yeah. it regardless. No, it was, it was, good.
1: Good, it was fu- good. Fun-filled passages there.
2: <laughs> I love the, the internal monologue of the <laughs> off. Yeah, it's it's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's so
0: great. It adds a whole huge other dimension to it. And so, however, that brings us just about to the end of this DwarfCast book club edition. And uh, we just have one final comment from International Debris that we wanted to address. International Debris simply asks, what's going to be next? You can't possibly do a whole DwarfCast on eleven and a half and pages of prose.
1: Well, Challenge
0: accepted. Fucking
2: <laughs> watchers. <laughs>
0: uh, no, yeah. Um, as International Debris and other people have noticed, the next part of this book is really tiny, <laughs> it's like it's 12 pages. But rules is rules. And so we're going to do that as its own uh, podcast. It will get its own thing. In all likelihood, it's not going to be an hour uh, and a half to two hours worth of discussion just on that part. Uh, but we will discuss it. Um, and then we'll probably share our thoughts about the book in general and the first two books in general yeah, because the... there were only two Grant Naylor books. So it seems like a good point to kind of look back Uh, But that will also, that will be the last uh, Dwarfcast that we release before Christmas and the new year. So who knows, maybe we'll figure out some sort of extra special Christmas themed treat to put on the end. Ho, ho, who knows. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes. Uh, look out for that. Uh, we'll also have details on that one about what we're doing with regards to Last Human and Backwards in the new year. But before the next book club, it will, of course, be the time for another commentary, and that will be the Can of Worms commentary, which will conclude our Series 11 mm. stuff. So it's like if we'd have actually planned this, it would be perfect that both Series 11 <laughs> and the Grant Nailer books are going to be wrapped up by the end of the year, but it's a complete fluke that that has happened. Uh, but we'll we'll still... We'll take the credit. So, yeah, if you want to leave comments for the next edition of the Book Club, then make sure you read it well in advance so you've got time to get through it all because it's going to be a bit of a slog for some of you. But, yeah, leave your comments on that in the thread that's attached to this Dwarfcast. If you want to contribute to Waffle Men, which is uh, the section of our commentary podcast where we answer your questions, then you can either uh, leave a comment on GT or find us on Twitter.
1: Twitter handle is Ganymede Titan, okay. so this should give you an idea of the kind of person we're working with.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> and like we said, we'll be back next time with our commentary for Can of Worms. Uh, but until then, stay safe, stay at home, put that down, leave it alone, and just, 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 just behave. <laughs> and as always, Ed Bye, everybody. Ed Bye.
2: Thank you for listening to G&T Dwarfcast, and we hope sometime in the future you'll decide to listen to our Dwarfcast again. Have a safe onward journey. Goodbye.
0: As as I was reading it out loud I suddenly had tachyons <laughs> in my head. I
2: don't even know if tachyons are actually still I mean, I just check if there is oh, still God, scientifically, been I don't know <laughs> Yeah, and probably tachyons are incredibly racist. <laughs> <laughs> I regret to inform you.
1: You've just got to realise that it's, it's not cancel culture, it's the consequences of their own words. They've just got to realise
2: that. <laughs> I wonder if super light particles still theoretical or whether they have been sort of fucked off in terms of like no that awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I mean fucked off is a purely scientific the scientific, terms, scientific community
1: today announced that um, super light particles have been fucked <laughs> off along with chuck, chucked into the same knackers bin as Pluto
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> a
0: spokesperson for NASA <laughs> says yeah we f- we're fucking it off we're fucking it off <laughs> uh, well I don't know if the Nobel Prize people do a fucking it off. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> its services to fucking it off. Oh dear.
2: the sorry, but the bit where you said it was the it was the and the little snacks it used to Exactly. <laughs> Which was like, like I Brother could Biggie. I could, you know, it was like the uh, it felt like on Blackadder with the uh, you will hang me upside down in a vat of warm marmalade and remove my testicles with a blunt. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Ha, <laughs> <laughs>